Dear Lord, you are holy. We thank you for your word. May we tremble before it. May we delight in it. May it be sweet to us. We thank you for the truths we just sang that you surely are risen, Jesus, and that you will reign in triumph forever. Spirit, open our eyes, open our ears, and open our hearts this morning. Amen. So this morning, we're going to be continuing in Luke chapter 6, starting in verse 43 and going on to the end of the chapter. If you do not have a Bible or a device with you, we're going to have people coming down the aisles with Bibles. You can flag one of them down. They'll get the word into your hands on loan to you if you just forgot yours. If you don't own a Bible, feel free to keep it as a gift. Now, when I was in um, about third grade, I remember going on a field trip to an apple orchard. I'm not sure what kind of field trips they do here in Columbus, but back in rural Indiana, we go to apple orchards. And it might not sound like the most exciting thing in the world, but for whatever reason, this trip has always uh, stood out to me as one of my favorite field trips I ever went on. I, ha I had a blast. And I want us to use this context for a little thought experiment. So, so picture with me. My class is walking through the orchard. Let's say our tour guide is describing the various kinds of trees, the various apples, what they're used for, how they grow. Apparently, I'm having the time of my life. And at one point, he stops and he says, I want to let you in on a little secret. He looks side to side and says, I know that these trees all have apples on them. The secret is these are actually banana trees. How do you think that that class of third graders would respond? Well, I'll tell you what, I'm sure we would have all erupted into laughter. And why is that? Why is it that children whose you know, crowning academic achievement to that point was reading Cat in the Hat would not hesitate to laugh at such a statement? It's because young children know intuitively that you can tell what kind of tree you have by its fruit. This is what makes Jesus' teaching here so brilliant. It's, it's simple, yet unrelentingly profound. He takes something we all know to be obviously true and he holds it up like a mirror to his hearers. But he also holds it up as a mirror to, to you and me today. So let's venture into what Jesus says here. And if we dare, take a look into the mirror ourselves. We're going to be reading from Luke 6, 43 to 49 this morning. And if you're able, I'd invite you to stand in honor of God's word. As I read these words from the mouth of our Savior, the Son of God, Jesus. Starting in 43, no good tree bears bad fruit, nor does a bad tree bear good fruit. Each tree is recognized by its own fruit. People do not pick figs from thorn bushes or grapes from briars. A good man brings good things out of the good stored up in his heart, and the evil man brings evil things out of the evil stored up in his heart. For the mouth speaks what the heart is full of. Why do you call me Lord, Lord? And do not do what I say. As for everyone who comes to me and hears my words and puts them into practice, 
I will show you what they are like. They are like a man building a house who dug deep and laid the foundation on rock. When a flood came, the torrent struck that house but could not shake it because it was well built. But the one who hears my words and does not put them into practice is like a man who built a house on the ground without a foundation. The moment the torrent struck that house, it collapsed and its destruction was complete. This is the word of the Lord. Feel free to take a seat. Now, in this passage, we have two parables, two illustrations. The first one compares two kinds of trees. The second one compares two builders. Now, if we start on the, the, the first parable, we look, we look at verse 43, and we see that unlike my little um, field trip thought experiment, Jesus starts off his tree illustration by highlighting the quality of the fruit rather than the kind of the fruit. And his, his first point is pretty clear. Bad trees don't produce good fruit, and good trees don't produce bad fruit. No one uh, picked a fresh, crisp apple off a tree, munched into it, and said, I bet that tree is really bad inside. We intuitively know this. In verse uh, 44, Jesus makes a similar statement. He says, No one finds fruit on thorn bushes and briars, and that's because producing fruit is simply not what these shrubs do. So if you sit in front of a thorn bush waiting for it to produce a nice, fresh cluster of grapes, Jesus is saying, you're wasting your time because you're hoping for a, a biological impossibility. Trees and bushes can only produce what they are, not what they aren't. In this verse, Jesus distills the principle down to a concise maxim. Each tree is recognized by its own fruit. You want to know what kind of tree you're looking at or if the fruit is in good shape, you look at the fruit. Bark may prevent us from seeing directly into the, the inner being of the tree, but because fruit is so intimately related to the inner life of the tree, to look at the fruit is to get a good look at the tree itself. Okay, so what do we do with this, you might ask? Well, I think the previous context of this passage helps us out. Jesus has just used the rather comic image of a man with a plank in his eye trying to cast out a speck of dust from his brother's eye. And his point is to say, don't be a hypocrite. He's saying, evaluate yourself first before you go around with a haughty air nitpicking dust from people's eyes. Evaluate yourself first. Now he, he transitions into a parable that teaches how to evaluate ourselves. See, we're like bark-covered trees. We can't just snap a selfie of ourselves and capture the, the state of our inner well-being. But what we can do is assess our fruit. And so if you're asking, how can we assess our hearts? We can assess the fruit. We can take an honest look at our lives and ask ourselves some tough questions about our fruit. And I think that will reveal a lot about our hearts because there is continuity between who we are inside and our external behavior. As one scholar put it, you will produce what you are and not something different. So in light of that, here's a list of some of the kinds of questions I would encourage all of us to be asking ourselves. What kind of things do I do when my guard's down? 
What kind of things do I say when I'm not trying to impress? What kind of things do I, I, I do when I think no one's watching? When, when trials come or my pride is hurt, what kind of speech gushes forth? Is it complaining? Is it bitterness? Or is it patience, forgiveness? What do I do with my free time or my discretionary income? And, and what does that tell me about what my heart cherishes most? As we discussed last week, what do I do when I encounter those who I perceive to be my enemies? Do I lash out in frustration? What are my actions and words like towards them? These kinds of questions can help us consider what kind of tree we are. They can reveal if we've really been changed, really been transformed by the gospel. Now, before we move on to the next point, I just want to throw up a bit of a warning sign, a caution sign. Because from what I've heard and experienced in my, um, albeit relatively short life, is that uh, we often veer into one uh, of two wrong directions when it comes to self-examination. On the one hand, we can go too easy on ourselves. We, we gloss over our lives and think, I'm doing pretty good, right? And, and, and we do that because what we do is we, we, we lower God's standard. Instead of following the king's code and using that as our standard, we, we devise some standard of our own, some sort of moral ethic of our own, or we just look at others around us and, and use them as our standard and say, hey, you know, according to my standard, according to, to um, that guy over there, I'm doing, I'm doing all right. And so we feel comforted. We feel quite content with ourselves. On the other hand, you can have people whose lives are actually characterized by much good fruit. But who with tender consciences and contrite hearts examine themselves, compare it to God's standard, and slip into despair. They may pray something like this, Lord, I'm so unworthy, so sinful. I fall so short of your standard. Surely I'm the bad tree. I feel hopeless. And they're utterly undone with distress and despair. And the problem is, right, it's, the, it's often the first group that shrugs off any concern that really should be alarmed by the state of their hearts. Whereas uh, often the second group of people should be comforted by the grace of their Savior shown in his shed blood and should recognize the amazing growth that that grace has produced in their lives over the years. So all that said, self-examination is difficult. That's why we need the help of the Spirit. I would encourage you, as you ask some of these questions, to pray earnestly that the Spirit would search you and guide you into an accurate assessment of yourself. But in addition to the Spirit, God has also given us each other, the body of Christ. Sometimes other people can actually have a more accurate view of ourselves than we do and, and can say something like, brother, sister in Christ, you're overlooking a lot of fruit in your life. Or on the other hand, can maybe say, brother, sister, I love you, but you're not as good as you think you are. And so if you ask a person who cares about you, who knows you and will be honest, that can correct some of our distortions. So I would encourage you, first of all, ask someone who knows you well. It's easy to put on a show for people we only see once in a while, right? But people we, we, we live with and see often, it's harder. So I'd, I'd encourage you to ask perhaps your spouse 
or a roommate or a close friend or a brother or sister, what kind of fruit they're seeing in your life? Because it's not always easy to assess these things on our own. That's why we have, at least one reason why we have the gift of the body. All right, so then uh, you say, well, we've assessed our fruit and, and, and maybe you'll find some, some rotten stuff, some empty patches in your life. So what do you do? How do we produce good fruit? Well, let's keep on moving in the passage and see if we can find some insights that might help us. In verse 45, Jesus says, A good man brings good things out of the good stored up in his heart, and an evil man brings evil things out of the evil stored up in his heart. For the mouth speaks what the heart is full of. Here, Jesus makes two moves at the same time. Uh, First of all, he applies the tree fruit analogy to human beings, which we've been doing so far, so it confirms that we're justified in, in doing that so far. The second thing he does is he further clarifies the relationship between our hearts and our outward actions. See, thus far we have discussed the fact that there's continuity, a sort of equal sign between our inner being and our external behavior. But now we see that that words at least actually come from our heart. Our our heart produces these things. The CSB renders this last part of the verse for his mouth speaks from the overflow of his heart. This is an analogy Pastor Gary often uses, but think about when you spill a cup of water or juice. What's all over your table now? Well, what has spilled out of the cup and is now on the table is just whatever was in the cup to begin with, because that is the source. And so it is with us. Because what comes out of our mouths, at least when we're not putting on a show, cascades from the ultimate source of our hearts. The link is so intimate that one theologian writes, what we say is an outgrowth of who we are. We actually find this principle in the Old Testament as well. Proverbs 4.23 cautions, Above all else, guard your heart, for everything you do flows from it. Here we see that it's not just what we say, but all that we do that issues from our hearts. From our inner being, from the center of who we are. Our words and actions don't spontaneously generate in a vacuum. They flow from our hearts. And understanding this, I think, is crucially important to answering the question, how do we produce good fruit? Let's go back to the tree analogy for a moment. Imagine with me that a grower goes out into his orchard and he inspects his fruit. But to his dismay, he, he finds that there's Rotten, mushy, black, moldy, squishy fruit on his trees. What does he do? Well, he grits his teeth and through sweat and tears, he painstakingly tries to to paint each and every fruit the right color. And where he sees empty spaces in the tree, he goes to the grocery store and buys fruit and and tapes it on the branches to fill in those, those patches. He wants good fruit so bad, so he pours all of his effort and concentration on the fruit. But what will the result be? Well, the rain's going to come down and wash off the paint. The wind's going to whip past and and strip the the, the taped-on fruit from the trees. And our grower is going to look out the window, exhausted, tear in his eye, and he sees that nothing changed. The problem is he focused all his effort on the fruit instead of the root. 
No change was made to the inner life of the tree, and so the tree, or rather the fruit, was unchanged. And I, I use this illustration because there's a wrong way to go about transformation, a way that puts you onto an unrelenting, grueling, soul-crushing hamster wheel that leaves you defeated, exhausted, and unchanged. Let me explain. If, if, if you, uh, let's say you're alarmed by what you see when you, you, you do this self-examination. And so in fear and desperation, you, you determine you're going to redouble your efforts. You're going to clench your teeth harder. You're just going to make it happen. You're going to stop gossiping. You're going to stop lusting. You're going to be patient. Share the gospel. Do these things you know you should do. And so you scratch and strain and claw and do everything in your power to make that fruit appear. But when the dust settles, you find that little has changed. Because if you focus on the fruit and, and what, only what you can do in your own power, you're fighting an impossible battle. You're, you're going into war with a pool noodle instead of a sword. You'll end up defeated. But praise God, there is an alternative. It's to be transformed from the inside. And so if you're, you're asking, how do we produce good fruit? Be transformed from the inside. Let's go back to our grower. What should our grower have done? He should have tended to the inner life of the tree. He should have concerned himself with the roots and asked, is there adequate water available, adequate nutrients in the soil for the roots to gather the resources it needs? The wise girl asks, how can I nourish the roots so that the tree is healthy, so that the fruit is good? As John Owens explains, the root must be dealt with. The nature of the tree changed or no good fruit will be brought forth. So let's get practical then. How then are we transformed from the inside? At first glance, this, this seems just as impossible because as a result of the fall, all of our hearts are poisoned by sin. These hearts of ours tend to desire and crave and love all sorts of things above God. That's why John Calvin famously called our hearts idol factories. They constantly want to latch on to new things to, to worship, to treasure above God. It might be approval we bow down to. It might be a comfortable life with a nice job in a house that we'd drop God for if we, if we had to. It might be pleasure that we'd, we'd sin in order to get. It might be money that has our hearts wrapped around its finger. And this produces all sorts of twisted behavior and speech. And I don't know about you, but I haven't found a surgeon in Columbus or the world that can, can deal with that. But God can. God can make us clean from the inside out. Hear these precious words from Ezekiel 36, 26, in which the Lord promises that he will one day do precisely that. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. We need our hearts to be renewed by the power of the Holy Spirit. And the Spirit does that today to all who put their faith in Christ. And so the first question we have to ask ourselves in this process is, have we truly trusted in Jesus as Savior? Have we seen our desperate condition and wickedness and thrown ourselves upon him as our only hope, as the one who died for us? And has that love warmed us so that we have a new orientation away from sin, 
and toward Christ. If that hasn't happened in your life, I would invite you to talk to one of the pastors afterwards. My prayer is that God would bring you to a point where your heart would cry, I see how wicked I am. I finally see how good you are. I see you as my greatest treasure. I I want you as my king. And I trust in your blood spilled for me. And if that happens, if you repent and believe, in other words, then Christ is yours and you are Christ's forever. And the Spirit will give you a new heart. And yet, there's still a continual transformation that needs to take place. So so for those of us who are believers, what does this continual heart transformation in the power of the Spirit look like? Now, I wish I had some really new uh, formula for you. But what I'm going to suggest might sound uh, frustratingly familiar. Because it's things like, Read your Bible and pray every day. I don't know where Danny is, but he better watch out. I'm coming for him. (laughs) But often we discount these things, and I hope that uh, maybe this morning we can see these kinds of spiritual disciplines that have endured for millennia that uh, that are enjoined in the Bible in a new light. So first, let's, let's think about God's word. When we take time to prayerfully read and meditate on God's word, the Spirit can use that for remarkable transformation. Psalm 1 makes this exact point, and I love it. It actually uses a tree analogy. I get excited every time I explain this. So it says, Psalm 1, Blessed is the one, dot, 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 whose delight is in the law of the Lord and who meditates on his law day and night. So the person who who meditates and delights in God's word is blessed. And now here comes the boom. That person is a tree planted by streams of water, which yields fruit in season and whose leaf does not wither. Whatever they do prospers. See, the the one who meditates on God's word is a tree planted by a stream. It's going to be a healthy, uh, healthy, solid tree that produces fruit because the roots have a limitless source to draw from, from that stream. And so it is with us when we meditate on the word, when we, we ponder it and we think out its implications, the, the, the Holy Spirit with limitless power uses that to transform us. Here's another text to John 15, 4. Remain in me as I also remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. Again, plant analogies. Um, I kind of want to write like the plant study Bible. Um, in fact, someone, I said that joke first service, and someone said, hey, uh, there's actually a book about that already. So it, it exists. But what Jesus is saying is, if you do not remain in me or abide in me, as other translations put it, you will never bear fruit. But if you do remain or abide in me, I'm I'm a limitless resource for you to draw upon to produce fruit. But what does it mean to abide in Christ, to remain in Christ? It means to to rely on him, to drink in his pulsating life, as one commentator puts it, to rest in what he's done on the cross, to daily ponder anew his love displayed in the gospel in all its various angles. As J.D. Creer is uh, quick to say, the gospel is not just the diving board. It's, it's the pool. It's the whole experience that we can dive deeper and deeper into. Now, I could go and talk about prayer and, and other spiritual disciplines, but 
I think we get the point. It's that, that being transformed by the Spirit is yielding to the Spirit's guidance and doing the kinds of things that the Holy Spirit uses, leverages to shape our hearts. Because as the, as the Spirit changes you from the inside, your heart will overflow into good fruit. And so I, I beg you, as you examine yourself, and perhaps you find yourself alarmed at what you find, don't try to slay your sin and generate fruit in your own strength. Now, it doesn't mean that no effort is involved. The process of being transformed is uncomfortable. And sometimes, uh, at least from our perception, making the right choice is just going to feel like making a hard, painful decision. And far be it from us to say, oh, I'll wait to do it until the Spirit makes you want to do that. But, but what I'm saying is that if, if you want lasting, significant change, you have to focus on the root, on the heart, and the power of the Spirit. So we talked about how to assess our fruit, how to produce good fruit. Now we're going to move on to the second parable. This is great. This, this um, sermon comes with its own illustrations. One of the hardest part about sermons is coming up with good illustrations, and these ones are straight from Jesus. So if anyone doesn't like the illustrations this morning, you can take that up with Jesus, I guess. <clears throat> so in this parable, Jesus describes two builders. The first builder toils to, to dig deep and lay a foundation on rock. And because he puts in the time to ensure that he has a solid foundation, when the rain comes and the river swells to overflowing, a stream bursts forth and breaks against the house, it remains sturdy. This is the person who hears and puts into practice what Jesus says. The second person in this parable is, is someone who's too short-sighted to think of the coming weather and too lazy to put in the hard work, the uncomfortable labor of digging into the rock to build a solid foundation. Instead, he builds it right on the topsoil. And when a torrent breaks against the house, it's destroyed. This is the person who hears and does not do what Jesus says. Now, the point here is this. Obedience to Christ is a sure foundation to build our lives upon. Now let's think about why this parable comes where it does right after the parable of the two trees. Now one logical suggestion is that in this parable, Jesus shows why we should care what kind of tree we are. Why should we care? Well, it's, it's because in this illustration, we learn that the two kinds of people symbolized by the two kinds of trees have vastly different levels of security and vastly different fates. One person is, is solid and secure and will endure in the flood, while the other person ends in utter ruin and must live with the constant risk of being destroyed at any moment. My parents' house is built at the bottom of a hill. They are uh, about the lowest point in the neighborhood. Thankfully, uh, the house is across the street from a retention pond where all of the rainwater is supposed to drain. However, every once in a while, very rarely this has happened. The rain has been heavy enough, fierce enough, that the retention pond overflowed. And then my parents' basement became the new retention pond for the neighborhood. And let me tell you what, I've seen what a lack of, of confidence regarding one's house in the face of rain does. Whenever it rains heavily, the worry 
the checking the weather, the, the looking out the window late at night. You don't want that to characterize your entire life. Now with my parents, I admit it's not a huge deal because they know their house isn't going to get swept away. But, but with us, it is a huge deal because Jesus is talking about our very lives and eternal destinies. We don't want to lack confidence. We don't want to be unsure about that. We don't want to be unsure whether our faith can withstand the stormy trials that life throws our way. And least of all, we don't want to face the flood of God's judgment on the last day and discover that we have no foundation and be destroyed. We all want to face life, storms of suffering, loss, and even death with confidence that we are held fast in the hand of Jesus. We all want to live with assurance that one day when we stand before our creator and judge, he will say, well done, good and faithful servant. But how can we live with such confidence and hope? We learn in this passage, it's to hear and do what Jesus says. It's the only response to Jesus' commands that ensure a firm grounding in the midst of trials and ultimately assurance of safety in the coming judgment. As we see in verse 46, it doesn't matter what we say if we don't follow the king's code. He's not our king. The Lord, Lord, in verse 46, is emphatic, an emotional appeal, but this lip service isn't worth anything if our lives don't declare Jesus as Lord. Because if we hear what Jesus says, or however, if we hear what Jesus says and put it into practice, we can have assurance in the midst of pain, grief, and loss that we belong to King Jesus, that he paid for our sins, and that when Christ returns to judge the earth, he will by no means cast us out. If, if this is you, no matter what life throws at you, you can say, I know who my king is. Even when death comes your way, you can say, I know who my king is. And when the future judgment comes, you can say, I know who my king is. He's the one who loved me and gave himself for me. I just want to address a question you might be asking us, wrestling with. Why are these uh, parables so binary, so black and white? You have those who, who put into practice what Jesus says and those who don't. And it's easy to talk in these neat categories like that, but sometimes it just feels like that doesn't map onto reality. What, what, what's the threshold? What percentage are we shooting for? And I admit, there's some tension here. Because you're right, the holiest among us doesn't obey perfectly. But I encourage you not to throw up your arms and defeat, but to, to wade into the difficulty of this a bit. And, and while I can't remove all of the tension, I think I can offer some categories that may help ease it a bit. I would suggest um, thinking in, in terms of overall posture, overall orientation, overall trajectory of your life in one direction or the other. Might lead to questions like this. Is the overall posture and orientation of my life towards obedience, though we do sometimes sin? When I do sin and realize it, do I seek to turn from it? Is there a general trajectory of growth in my life? On the other hand, is my overall orientation towards doing what I think is best? 
Am I indifferent towards disobedience in my life? Is there, um, are there commands of Jesus that I'm content and settled to ignore because just not willing to give that up or to do that? These are helpful questions to ask. But again, we need the Spirit and we need each other. Finally, I just want to say this. I know some alarm bells might be ringing off in your mind. You might be thinking, this sounds a lot like, like, like salvation is earned by our obedience, like we need to obey our way into heaven. What about grace? This is grace polaris, after all. And I think that's a good instinct, right? Because, because we have passages like Ephesians 2, 8 through 9, that are crystal clear that we are saved by grace through faith. We are saved by putting our faith in Jesus and trusting that his blood can cleanse us. So how do we, how do we put this together? Well, I believe that the Bible is quite clear that if we have true saving faith, it will express itself outwardly. As I'm sure you, you talked about in the James series a while back, we may be saved by faith alone, but true faith never comes alone. It is always uh, accompanied by some degree of works. It always generates fruit. So if you're asking, how should I understand salvation in light of this passage? Our salvation is not earned but evidenced. By that, I mean that if, we, that if we are saved by faith, there will be some evidence of it in our lives. Therefore, when we do see a pattern of good fruit in our lives and a posture towards obedience, we can have confidence, not because we earned anything with that fruit, but because of what Christ earned for us and is now doing through us. And in that sense, our ultimate foundation is Christ. 1 Corinthians 3.11 says, For no one can lay any foundation other than the one already laid, which is Jesus Christ. He is the ultimate ground for our assurance and hope. So if you've not trusted in this great Savior yet, I invite you to put your faith in him, to see him as greater than all that this world has to offer. Live for him. And when you do, you have everlasting hope and joy. Because Jesus offers unshakable assurance to those who trust and obey him from the heart. Let's pray. Lord, we need your help. We need your spirit to guide us as we examine ourselves. We need your spirit to empower us to produce fruit. We need your help to continually fix our eyes on you, Jesus. We thank you that there is hope. Some of us may feel discouraged as they assess the fruit, and there might be much that warrants tearful repentance. But it is not hopeless because of what you've done, Jesus. May our hearts cling to you. Thank you for all you've done and the love you displayed on the cross. Amen.